0: Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Delson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters. Mark Lepresti, managing director of Moneta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Mascioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of Institutional Prime Brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started.
1: All right, welcome B3 Nation. Welcome everybody to the Sunday edition of Bulls, Bears and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. Every Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, 5 30 PM Eastern Time. I'm Rob Nelson from Roundtable Media. We've got this is our Memorial Day edition. Who knows? It's Memorial Day. People are out having fun. But you know, hey, and the markets are on pause, except the crypto markets never pause. Mark Lepresti, good to see you. Alex, good to see you. We'll see if John Nigerian makes it off off a of boat. Uh, Mark, we're sponsored by Quintus today, is that right?
2: Yes, Rob, that's right. A big, huge welcome, as always, to the B3 Nation, and thank you for joining us on this very special Memorial Day weekend episode, where we thank those that serve currently, that are retired from service, and those we lost in the defense of our great nation and the American way. Very, very important, and we have some very special guests coming up, I believe, in Beyond B3 to talk about all that that means. But right now, we do have to give a shout out to our show sponsor for this Memorial Day special. We're talking about cuentas cuentas is leading the way in providing alternative payment rails for the unbanked and the underbanked uh, with a, a bank card that enables folks to send remittances back home to the countries from which they came as they immigrate here to the United States in search of a better life you can check out and learn more about what Quentas is doing to help the unbanked and underbanked at www.quentas.com.
1: That's C-E-N-T-A-S.com. Thanks, Mark. And we got a big show, everybody, out there today. It is our Memorial Day special, but that doesn't stop us. We're always working. Um, we've got a special guest in the B Block in our fight. We're going to be talking about the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling negotiation. A lot has happened over the weekend, still happening today, and we're going to have Michael Herson with us. He uh, is one of the Washington's top defense and space lobbyists. He's going to bring us all kinds of insight. He's a market master in a different space of the market masters. We've also got, uh, in the crypto block of the show, everyone, we're going to talk about what's happening with Bitcoin in China and why is Tether Tether USDT doing well while other stablecoins pegged to the dollar aren't. Mark, before we get into uh into our debt ceiling debacle. That's that's what Mark is named. Mark names all the topics and segments. He's like, he should be like a, a one of those like ad guys in the old days who just wrote the things because they're always clever, debt ceiling debacle. Before we get there though, Mark, what's happening? Let's just take a look at the markets. I know it's been, you know, it's Sunday, so it's been a couple days in, but you know, how did the week finish out and how are we kind of stepping into the beginning of a, a, a short week after a long weekend?
2: Well, of course, Rob, as everybody knows, the markets were grappling with the debt ceiling debacle. Are we going to have a deal, not have a deal? What does it mean? Uh, Fitch uh, talking about uh, putting the U.S. debt rating on credit watch negative. Of course, one of the big concerns when we talk about a hard versus a soft default. But, of course, the disaster, as we're going to cover in a little bit, has been averted with a deal being announced earlier today. This coming week, a holiday-shortened week in trading markets closed, of course, tomorrow for Memorial Day. But we do have a pretty uh, full plate of numbers coming out this week. On uh, Tuesday, we'll have Case Shiller National Home Price Index and the FHFA House Price Index to give us an indication as to whether or not we're seeing any loosening in the incredibly tight supply situation as U.S. house prices for new homes and existing homes, remains at historically elevated levels. We'll also get the JOLTS report. That's the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey for April. We'll get more employment information with ADP's National Employment Report, which tracks private sector payroll. And, of course, rounding out the employment picture for this coming week, we're going to get ADP's National Employment Report and the Labor Department's Non-Farm Payroll Report for May. We're going to get the last few stragglers – uh, uh, reporting on earnings with Salesforce, HP, Broadcom, Dollar General, Lululemon, Macy's, and Dell reporting
1: next week. So a short week, but plenty on tap. Hey, Mark, on the earnings stuff, do you have any of your prognostications, any of your crystal balls, that you think are going to be better or worse than people think?
2: Well, Rob, you know we're going to be looking to see whether or not that trade down trade that John and I spend so much time talking about on this and other shows, as it relates to. If uh, American consumers are turning to the discount outlets like Dollar General and Dollar Tree to help stretch that already stretched dollar against the backdrop of consumers with historically low savings rates, historically high credit card rates, as we know, crossing a trillion dollars. I think two weeks ago, we've talked about that a lot on the show, going to see whether or not Lululemon is able to maintain any kind of market share in the athleisure space if folks are still spending on that, although uh, we do see that people are spending more on experiences and and health and things of that nature, so we're going to be very interested to see how that pans out. Uh, so we'll see. I don't I don't have any major standout bull calls yet, though, Rob. And this being the Memorial Day special, we're going to cover, I think, more sort of macro topics than getting into individual names.
1: Absolutely, except for one. Before we get to because you know when we'll get to the Twitter to the crypto update on our Twitter spaces in a second, Alex. Um, Question for you Mark, you know one of the one of the topics that's come up a lot is the whole thing with Bud Light and now Target. And I had a question for you. When people see it, like Target having, you know, people go oh it's what they did with their Pride thing. It, it, Target's a consumer, you know, merchandising store is is with target are are some of these companies already having problems and it just happens that they're hitting the political headwinds but they were already you know wasn't a great time to be a target right now just given what's happening with consumer spending and all that and you know do we kind of miss that is there an underlying thing the markets are looking at with some of these companies going we already had questions and concerns yeah i mean no doubt rob i mean it's an interesting time for target to
2: come out with such a controversial you're talking about of course this the uh The swimwear line that's designed for folks that want to hide certain body parts that God gave them, that being highly controversial, including part of that line for kids. Enough said about that. Um, But, yeah, and, you know, listen, Target is no longer considered as it was, you know, sort of historically uh, uh, considered to be, uh, you know, a lower market uh, outlet, uh, which is part of the reason why, you know, we saw some softness in, in their earnings and their forward guidance so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a questionable approach for a company that's already struggling to keep what, uh, you know, little consumers have to spend in terms of discretionary. Although Target, of course, uh, like Walmart, which uh, provided uh, the beat the street when they reported uh, last week or, or at the end of the week before, if memory serves correctly, um, a lot of uh, essentials you can buy in Target, you know, some groceries and things like that. The target is definitely under
1: pressure as we see decline in consumer demand, particularly in the discretionary space. Yeah, and you were saying Dollar General. On the other hand, they're in a different spot, right? Because they're they are considered the low end of the consumer space. Look, I shop down. Who doesn't? You know, you go, hey, I don't need to spend as much. Let me go here and get the same thing for less.
2: Yeah, well, that I mean, that's true. Not necessarily the same thing when it comes to Dollar Tree and Dollar General, but we do expect traffic to those stores to to continue to go up as people try to you know get what they need for as little as they can
1: spend yeah well alex masioli how are things looking in in our in the crypto verse this weekend you know again it's been you were saying uh, on thursday volatility was a little lower in most areas certainly with with uh bitcoin and
3: ethereum is that changing over the weekend or is it a quiet weekend <sighs> Hey listen it's a quiet weekend guys if you're uh, if you're trading crypto uh you know probably a good weekend to take a break from the screens because i can tell you right now um you know we're sitting at 1.15 trillion market cap uh for the crypto market and the volume is a super low 25.4 billion dollars um hasn't been this low I-, I don't think i've reported this low all year uh bitcoin rose 3% though uh to 27590 um, after sentiment moved higher uh, to a bullish neutral score of 56 out of 100 on the Trade the Chain dashboards, but volume is off by 14%. But this little bump is going—I'm going to attribute this little bump uh, to the overall market. Um, you know, Bitcoin led the way over Ethereum, which only enjoyed a one and a half percent nudge to the upside. Uh, but you know. Mm, I- I just don't know what we're what we're looking at here. It's been sideways all month. The one thing I can say is the uh, the the loss, the Bitcoin 30-day price action loss, is now reduced to six percent. We're you know working our way back towards even, um, but I think it's uh, a lot of pause on economic uncertainty, uh, like my counterpart here, Mr. Lapresti alludes to on many of his topics. Uh, there's a lot of things that still need to be shaken out. Uh, well, you know, with the TradFi. Uh, macro I will say uh one thing we did notice was uh net outflows of stable coins in the last 24 hours were nearly eight to one over net inflow so um a, a lot of uh dry powder being pulled off of exchanges uh temporarily here and alex are
1: we seeing a um are we seeing a boost in Bitcoin as the debt you know we're going to be talking in a minute with Michael Herson and kind of a fireside chat about the debt ceiling, are are we seeing a continued or or not really boost in Bitcoin because of the uncertainty around it? Although they're saying they're close to a deal, they're still saying, we don't have a deal yet.
3: No, I think we're seeing a lot of stability because of that right now. Um, uh, Again, the the parties that are in it are in it from uh, earlier in the year with the banking crisis. The parties that uh, chose not to be are still on the sidelines uh, looking to see what happens. All right, well, with on that note, let's um let's bring Michael Hurston in.
1: Michael is the president and CEO of American Defense International. It's one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms. Michael, good to have you. Good to have you for a conversation about the debt ceiling, about defense, defense spending, balancing that with fiscal responsibility. And I think for listeners and the insight, you you've been a long time lobbyist. And an insight into the process of how it works in Washington, especially the Washington of today, which is even more chaotic than the Washington of the past. So welcome, by the way, everyone. This is Michael's first. He has a podcast, but it is his first Twitter spaces. So welcome to your <laughs> inaugural Twitter space. Thank you very much
4: so far, Michael. So far, so good. As long as you can hear me, I'm doing the right thing.
1: That's right. If only that was true in Washington. As long as you can hear me, I'm doing the right thing. We've got a mess, Michael. I mean, and, you know, we've talked about on our Twitter spaces a lot about the debt ceiling debacle, as Marco Presti calls it. And although, you know, and you and I both, you know, spent a long time, you still in Washington. I was there for a long time earlier. I mean, the fact that they're saying we're close, but we're still not there. We know the political realities. I mean, McCarthy has to get... A tricky, you know, Republican caucus on board with conservatives and moderates. And I don't think the the, you know, I don't think Jakeem Heffries has the easiest job in the world either. I mean, he's got progressives and moderates could be like, no, you're caving too much. So what are your thoughts at at where we stand on this?
4: Well, I think, you know, a, a deal in principle came together late yesterday. We're waiting to see legislative text today. Uh, And then under Republican House rules, they have 72 hours to review the legislation, which means that the vote would take place in the House on on Wednesday. Now, you're right. As you point out, it's really no— uh, slam dunk uh, I, you know and and both sides are selling this this deal a little differently um, and they've a lot of unanswered questions until they see uh, the legislation but I expect Kevin McCarthy to have a majority of his House Republicans on board with this deal uh, he does have a lot of people on his far right taking some very serious shots at him for example uh, chip Roy who's one of the hardline conservatives who played a key role in, in putting the initial uh, bill together, uh, called this a turd sandwich uh, earlier today. Uh, Ralph, and Ralph Norman, Congress from South Carolina, said this deal is insanity. Uh, Congressman Dan Bishop from North Carolina uh, said this is just rhinos uh, congratulating McCarthy for getting almost Zippo. Uh, and, and the list goes on. I think those criticisms are very unfair. I'm actually surprised at what McCarthy was able to extract uh, from the Democrats on this. Uh, but to your earlier point, I had dinner with several House Democrats last week, and their take was, hey, you know, I don't know how we can vote for this thing if, from what we've seen. But one of those Democrats just texted me about 10 minutes before the show saying, hey, you know what? This deal doesn't look, isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, and I think we're going to have a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats uh, voting for it. Um, now, it's not over till it's over, and it still has to pass the Senate as well. Uh, we've seen some senators come out. Uh, with some issues with this, including Senator Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican, uh, is very upset about where the defense number uh, stands with this deal. Uh, we can talk more about the implications for defense uh, uh, later. But uh, I think this deal will get done. I'll give McCarthy credit by saying this is just a start, because again, as you pointed out earlier, I mean our fiscal house needs to uh, is in a lot of disorder, and this deal, at the end of the day, will save you know between 100 and 130 billion dollars. Uh, but that means the annual budget deficit, instead of being $1.5 trillion, will be just under $1.4 trillion. And that really you know, doesn't stop us from racing toward $40 trillion in debt until we really start to figure out how we're going to deal with the mandatory side of this and how we're going to deal with the revenue side of the equation. So, Michael, we're going to jump into some of the defense stuff in a second,
1: and then you know, literally related to this deal and to the spending overall. But to, to, to follow up on what you were just talking about, I get both sides of this. I am, you know, Jim Jordan, Congressman Jim Jordan, came out and said, "Look, anything that's a, the first time we're having major spending cuts, I'm going to look at it as a good day." But I also understand the feeling, and I'm. I get that everyone wants this to happen because nobody wants to shoulder the, the you know, and Mark will weigh in on this in a minute. We've talked in our Twitter spaces about even getting close to this. This default will send the markets into a bit of chaos. But I also understand there's a hesitancy on both sides to be seen as caving, right? You've been in Washington a long time. I mean, there's more than ever now a feeling on both sides. You cannot be seen as being the one that's weak. Even if it makes sense to do it, if it's going to make me and my side look weak, we can't do it.
4: Look, that's an excellent point, right? And Uh, And I think that the Democrats have a lot of regrets right now. I mean, they regret that they did not raise the debt ceiling at the end of last year when they had control of all three branches of government. They regret that they were relying on the dysfunction of the GOP in the House without having a plan B. And they're also regretting that they did not negotiate sooner. Uh, And as a result, I really think that from what I've seen that Republicans got by far the better part of the deal, because I'm looking at what the Democrats are saying today. And the things that they're counting as victories are things they stopped the Republicans from doing. You know, for example, uh, the agreement does not include any changes to the Inflation Reduction Act's climate uh, cl- uh, and clean energy uh, provisions. Um, it does not stop uh, the student loan relief that the president wanted, even though it restarts payments on student loans. That was going to happen anyway, you know, starting September 1st. The Democrats are saying they stopped changes in in, uh, in Medicaid, um, that they prevented uh, some changes in temporary assistance to needy families with children. Uh, okay, I mean, those are definitely uh, victories, but uh, as far as what they got in this deal um, was is very little. What did the defense industry get? And from
1: this... Is a great launch point to also, like I said, we'll get in before you leave. I think people out there, B three Nation, it's fascinating to get the insights of, of someone who's been lobbying so successfully in Washington for so long. I mean, you even just saying, I'm talking with various members of Congress. You know, they're back channeling to you. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we get to, we'll save that for last, Michael. But before we get to that, what? You know, defense, both sides seem to be relatively comfortable with the fact that we're not going to shrink defense spending. Is that accurate? I mean, is the defense, and look, I know the defense industry is a huge thing, so it's, not like it's one thing. But when you look at defense and aerospace, are you happy
4: with where we are right now? Uh, I'm actually not happy with where we are right now. Uh, we had received indications all along through these negotiations that not only was defense not going to be touched, but that we were going to add to uh, the, the number that the president submitted in his budget request earlier this year, because there's a, a a feeling among you know the DoD and defense professionals that we have to at least keep pace of inflation every year, and Biden's budget request to Congress that came over the earlier this year only grows defense at three percent, which is well short of where of inflation. Under this deal. Um, defense has to stay at Biden's budget request number, so defense comes out better than the non-defense domestic discretionary spending, but still does not come out as big as we had hoped it would. Uh, in order to not only keep pace with inflation, but also keep pace with the threats that are growing around the globe, I mean, to, in order to project power into the Indo-Pacific region to be able to to counter China, that's a very expensive proposition. We also have the threat of a land war in Europe, which we've seen from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we continue to have other obligations around the world, especially countering uh, terrorism in uh, the Middle East and North Africa. All those are expensive propositions, and it'll be very difficult for them to, to figure out how to meet all these threats adequately with those budget numbers.
1: So let me ask you, um, in terms of that, you know, in the public mindset, right? this is all politics. And in the public mindset... There's a back and forth on defense. Everybody wants a strong America. Everyone wants us to be safe. People are debating over how much should we be out, you know, defending the whole globe. You know, last week, I had an interesting conversation on roundtable with the senior fellow at at, at the Heritage Foundation and and the retired lieutenant colonel, who was the one who basically led the the raid on in, you know, on the Republican National Guard in Iraq, you know, the famous Sunday raid. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a sense that maybe, there's a balance, and I'm going to ask you: How do you balance, that and how do your the people you talk to balance the need to like we've got it? We can't just look like we're asking for money for whatever. It has to be smarter, more thoughtful, more focused. That may still mean more money, but redirecting it is that part of the negotiation and the talk you have with both members and with your the firms, the companies you represent.
4: Uh, absolutely, right. And it's a very complicated problem. Um, you know, first, the taxpayer money should be spent wisely. And in a budget that's the size of 886 billion dollars, yes, there's always going to be some waste, fraud, and abuse. We should root that out. And make sure that that's being corrected, and taxpayer money is being spent wisely. But you know, we've also our government's made some mistakes, which has resulted in higher costs for us, and those mistakes are hard to reverse. Uh, back in the Clinton years. Uh, The Pentagon encouraged defense industry to merge, Uh, and a lot of defense companies that existed in those days no longer exist. So we're down to a much smaller group of defense companies, which means there's far less competition. And it means that things are produced much slower and, and and at much greater cost. So I think one thing the Defense Department needs to do, and it is doing, but needs to do more of, is using uh, uh, its access to disruptors throughout the country uh, who can do things that some of the big defense companies can't do and open the aperture more. I mean, China has what they call military civil fusion. Every company you know uh, that's in China is engaged somewhere in the defense industrial complex. We need to make it easier for people to do business with Department of Defense and get uh, the DoD out there to see more of what's available out there. I, I see it with my clients regularly. when We bring products or technologies to DoD. They had no idea those things existed if we hadn't brought it to them. So we need to figure out how how to do that, how to cooperate more with our allies and partners, uh, not just in NATO, but non-NATO, who fear the same threats that we do. Is that a public relations battle at some level? I mean, you go back to World War II, right? That's kind of how they framed
1: it, right? Now it's like, you know, we see military defense over here and everything else over here. We even call it non-military discretionary spending, Mm -hmm. you know, like its own camp. Is that partly kind of... Uh, something you have to make a case to the to the country for, like look at the technology we're going to create. Look at how useful this will be in your lives.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point, right? I mean it's it's a it's a cultural problem uh, for the DoD to try and change the way it does business because it. it for them, this is just the way, and it's not the way, uh, but it's also a PR issue uh, as well, right? I mean, um, some companies don't want to do business with the Department of Defense, and I don't think that's acceptable. Uh, we also have a lot of universities in this, cu- in this country who don't want ROTC on their campuses, but yet they want uh, research dollars from the Department of Defense. Personally, I don't think any university should get research and development dollars from the DOD if they don't allow ROTC uh, on their campus. Uh, So so, say say it ain't so. I don't believe you. There's campuses that don't want ROTC. Where? In America? No.
1: (laughs) can't be true. Hey, I want to ask you a little about the – and then I want to bring Mark and Alex into this. I want to ask you a little about the world of lobbying. It's such a gray area for most of us. And look – I have my own negative views about lobbying. It, not all, I get you have to have lobbying. I get it's not going to work without it, but we have a negative impression of it. And, you know, people come from Congress, then they go to lobby, then they make lots of money, and everybody's, you know, in on a thing. Yet without it, you know, without people guiding and connecting, we wouldn't get any results. So years in this space, what do you see today like you know it, it, it's different from before is it a harder time is it a different time is it is it as much you know behind closed doors and nobody sees what's going on
4: um i think that's you know it can be an exaggeration but i think your your analysis is correct right and it's it's a harder time but it's really i think more the latter more uh, you know a different time um and, and not all lobbyists make a lot of money by the way but um i would i would say that um you know if you if you are sick, you want to go to a doctor, right? If somebody serves you with papers and sues you, you need a lawyer to defend you, right? Then what's wrong with having a lobbyist help you navigate the, the, the levers of government, which are equally as complicated as, as those other two things. And the thing that I've seen, the biggest change, which I think is, hurts the country the most, is that democratic administrations now do not want lobbyists serving in those administrations. So what you're saying is someone who has spent their life lobbying for clean water, cannot work in the EPA, right? Someone who has spent their life lobbying for affordable housing cannot work in the Department of Housing and Urban Development, right? Someone who has spent their life lobbying to improve education in this country make it more accessible can't work in the Department of Education. That to me is silly, right? Lobbyists are subject matter experts and we are there to inform and educate and the system would not work without us, right? Members of Congress, members of the executive branch rely on us heavily for the information that we provide them.
1: That is such an interesting way to put it, Michael. Especially using more progressive, you know, again, I don't mean that in a negative way, mm-hmm. but using things where we don't see it's, oh, you worked for, you know, you worked for the defense company. Now you want to go be in the defense department. Like any, you know, anything that has a cause, anything that has an outcome, you're sort of saying, wouldn't you want the people who know best that space and how to make things happen? to be on the inside and be able to work it from the inside. It's such an interesting insight. I want to bring Alex and um, Mark into this. I know Mark for sure has got some questions for you, but before I do, I'm going to tee this up too to Alex. Um, Michael, what's the relationship with a lot of your clients when you look at the, the crypto space? Because obviously crypto and blockchain, certainly blockchain has a lot of implications for national security.
4: I gotta tell you, it doesn't come up at all, <laughs> you know. And I represent—I think probably the largest defense practice in the city, and defense is all I do. But I have about ninety clients in the space, and uh, crypto and blockchain uh, never come up in, in, in conversations. Wow, never, yeah. Alex. Alex Massioli, are you surprised with that?
3: I'm I'm never surprised about it. Uh... Um, you know, the momentum of lobbying for digital assets has uh, gotten weak over the last couple of years. I definitely think uh, there needs to be more of it. But who knows if now is the opportune time with uh, all the chunk chokeholds going on. Um, I'm not sure that lobbyists for, the, for our space would get anywhere. Uh, as far as national security concerns are, uh, you know, we're, we're discussing, I, I really I, I don't see anybody bring up a relevant point in how how blockchain and digital currency currently matters with uh, national security. I, I'd love to know more or hear more if that if, if I'm wrong on this, but I just don't see it right
4: now. I go think on, that's I think, think it's correct. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. No, I, I think well, what no, he just said is happens. in the Biden administration. Yeah, is correct. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So we want to bring Mark in and let Mark ask you some questions, but as a tee off to that, do you find, like, how do you walk the line of having to be, you know, you've got to be somewhat nonpartisan. You can't, like, have, right, you've got to have Democrats and Republicans
4: in a a friendly space with you or you'd get nothing done, right? Look, I I think you're exactly right, but there are uh, plenty of lobbying firms in Washington that are just Democratic lobbying firms, and there are plenty that are just Republican lobbying firms. I think I am very fortunate to work in the national security arena because that is the last bastion of bipartisanships. I work very closely with Democrats and Republicans on the House Armed Services Committee, foreign affairs, intelligence, homeland appropriations, who are really uh, true patriots who work together across the aisle to figure out how we're going to meet the threats that face us and how we're also going to take care of our men and women in uniform. I mean, look, there's only a few outliers out there, but I said the vast majority are here for the right reasons and work very well together.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to, Mark, I'll let you jump in. But the last question, just because of what you said, Michael, the we have a perception of we support the troops. Like now everybody's like, you know, thank you for your service. But those same people often are skeptical of defense spending. How do you balance that out and
4: address that? Look, I, I think it's an excellent question, right? Because if you support the troops and you, we, and you want to keep them out of harm's way, um, uh, uh, then when they are in harm's way, we should make sure that they have the best equipment possible that is well-maintained so that if we have to fight, we're going to win and that we're going to keep our troops safe when we do. Right. Uh, and that's the argument. And look, if you look at our defense budget of now this budget request this year, about $886 billion, only about 300 plus billion of that goes into research and development of new weapon systems and procurement of new weapon systems. That leaves you with well over $580 billion that goes into other things, right? Uh, operations and maintenance, you know, repair uh, to maintain our systems, uh, but also. Personnel costs are extremely high in the military, and that's been something that Congress has felt that they're doing to help the troops is I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give them more benefits. For example, the GI Bill, which was a, used to recruit people into the military, has become, I think, in many respects, overly generous. If a, if a, if a soldier doesn't use their GI Bill, they can then let their spouse or their children use it instead. You know, that's a tough trade-off, right? That's money that could be going into more research development, more maintenance, more more weapon systems uh, versus that. You know, uh, People who join the military get health care for life. Is an 18-year-old who joins the military joining because they want to get health care for life? Probably not necessarily, right? So if we're going to have a discussion at some point about uh, mandatory spending, Social Security, Medicare, things like that, we also take a look at the military benefits as well, where we don't break our, our commitment to our veterans, but that we change the packages that new people who come into the military come in because it is an all-volunteer force. People don't have to join. So I think making the benefits um, a little less generous, but also investing in next-generation weapon systems is the right balance. Wow. We'll have you on for that conversation. That might be the third rail of the third rail. We're talking
1: yeah. to Michael person <laughs> who's the president and CEO of American Defense International. It's one of Washington's top defense and space lobbying firms. He's been doing this a long time. He's really good at it. This is the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter spaces. We do this Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can follow us at Get Rev Radio. Please follow all our speakers, including Michael. He's, this is his first Twitter space. We're welcoming, welcoming him in, and this is our Sunday special edition. Marco Presti, I know you've got to have a question or two for Michael.
2: And of course I do, Robin. First, I'm going to apologize for the loud background noise. I'm at a family memorial date dinner here at little Italian restaurant in the great state of New Jersey. And I'm very, very happy to have a friend
3: for more than 10 years. Michael Harrison,
2: one of the smartest and the best in the business, joining us and addressing the B3 Nation today. Two things I want to put out to Michael, and then I'll mute to you all, Don't hear the background noise. One is, Michael, I hear you on the overly generous uh, uh, benefits that you're referring to but we're also facing an incredible recruitment crisis across all branches of our armed forcemen, our armed forces excuse me a um, historic uh, recruitment crisis something that we should ask uh, Brigadier General Anthony Tate who's going to be up on stage in our second hour so curious to hear how you balance those two uh, considerations and the other thing I'm curious to know is you know we are at a historically low uh, rape when it comes to our armory. We're, we're out of bullets, is essentially what I've heard from many, many people on the Hill and in the military uh, complex. How can we talk about cutting defense spending in any way, shape, or form when we've given so much military support to the Ukraine that we're actually in, in my estimation, a very position relative to defense of our military?
4: Well, Mark, those are two excellent questions. Uh, so let me start with the with the recruitment crisis. I, I only so, do excellent questions, Michael. <laughs> and I will point out you are in the Garden State, which is where I am from, too. So shout out to my friends in New Jersey. But um, So uh, actually, my uh, first job in the Pentagon was working in what is now the Office of the Undersecretary uh, of Defense for Personnel Readiness. And we had oversight of all recruiting. And when I worked in the Pentagon, this was in the early 90s. The active duty military of the United States was 2.1 million active duty. Today, we're just over 1.4 million active duty. So 700,000 troops smaller than we were then. We recruited into the military about 320,000 people a year. Over 800,000 people applied, but we rejected half a million people. Uh, And so we were getting almost 100% high school diploma graduates and people scored very high on the entrance exam. Now, we only have to recruit about, just over 180,000 people into the military each year, and the population of the United States is 50 million more than it was back then, but yet, we cannot hit those goals, right? And I think a lot of it uh, comes down to, to, well, it comes down to really several things. Number one, we have an education crisis in this country. Uh, 71% of the people in this country, ages 17 to 24, are ineligible for military service. Because they can't read and write properly, or they're too fat, all right, and have health risks or, uh, or criminal records, right? That is unacceptable. And that is within our power to fix, right? The Chinese are producing six engineers for every one that we produce, right? So instead of the Democrats worrying about, um, getting rid of gifted and talented programs, making people feel bad, and Republicans raging about CRT and banning books. Maybe if we address the education crisis in this country, we'd be able to fix not only our military problems, but also uh, make sure that we're the ones that come up with that next generation technology that's going to dominate commercially, but also can help the military as well. Um, I also think that you know we, that we need to step up our military advertising, right? Um, because I don't think the military uh, the advertising budget is anywhere near you know where it used to be. Um, and again, I think there's a sense on some college campuses that joining the military, you know, is a bad thing. But uh, I think education is the biggest problem we face with our recruitment crisis. Now, as far as well, we talked about us running out of bullets, again, I'll go back to my, Experience in the in the Pentagon. I was there for the first Gulf War. Now, you remember, this was the military back then in the first Gulf War. that had to fight World War Three on two weeks' notice that the Russians are coming through the through the gap in Europe, uh, and we have to we have to counter them. And that same military is what we used to push Saddam Hussein uh, out of Kuwait. On the third day of the ground war, we were running out of certain calibers of ammunition already. Right, ammunition has always been a problem that we have not dealt with. And it baffles me as to why. And now we're showing now with what we're doing with resupplying Ukraine that we don't have enough of what we call war reserve for ourselves. So while we're resupplying them, we don't have enough for ourselves. And we also don't have enough to resupply our allies. And at the same time, we're also trying to supply Taiwan with as much equipment as possible to make it much harder for the Chinese to try and take Taiwan. So I personally agree with what you just said. It's probably not the best time. Uh, to be cutting defense spending when our stockpiles are so low. But at the same time, our contractors need that sense of certainty. If we're going to give them a contract this year to buy a bunch of artillery, for example, okay, well, if they're going to hire people, they're going to retool, they're going to do all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, two years now, we're not buying as much. It's not cost-effective for them to make the investment. We have to be able to make long-term investments so that they can not only tool up the factories, but retrain the workers and have them ready to go. And that's something that I think the DOD... Has done a poor job of is maintaining and understanding industrial-based policy. And for the first time this year in the budget request, they're allowing multi-year contract purchases of ammunition, which is something they've never done in the past. So it's just a start, but there's still a long way to go. Hey, Michael,
2: go. I, I, I got, to think that was probably a, a, a Republican-backed uh, initiative for those wonders. That, that's a comment, and then a question. And it's a little tongue in cheek, but it's also as a concerned American citizen, is China just laughing at us right now as they continue to build up their presence in the South China Sea, watching us run out of our armament reserves? We're still prepared for a conflict right now.
4: Well, again, another very good question. So I was at a gathering of defense leaders at the Reagan National Library late last year, and during lunch, I was sitting with um, the Singapore military attaché. And at this time, in December, we still hadn't finished passing our appropriations bills and authorization bills uh, in the House and Senate. So at the table, people were asking me to kind of run through where we are and how we're going to get there. And the general from Singapore interrupted us and said, just so you know, the Chinese are laughing at you guys, right? They laugh at your system and the things you do to yourselves that make them stronger, right? Uh, And you're exactly right. Not only is it the investments, but you know, we're going to end up passing at the end of this year a continuing resolution uh, because we won't have the spending bills done on time. So, th- what a continuing resolution does is, yes, it keeps spending at the previous year, but it also makes it keeps everything at the previous year. So, any new research that you're going to do the next year, you can't do. Any new procurement you're going to do, you can't do. So, that allows the Chinese to keep catching up to us or getting further ahead of us in things that they are further ahead of us on. So uh, I think there's a long list of things I like to use with my friends. And also, you mentioned our shortfalls in weapons systems. We need to do a better job of selling our weapons overseas. There are countries well outside of NATO that are our friends, our allies, our partners that want to buy U.S. weapons systems. That keeps our factories humming. That keeps our people employed. That gives us interoperability with them when we fight alongside them in coalitions like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. We have influence with those countries. We control what kind of weapons those countries are getting. When they don't buy from us, it's easy for them to say, well, we'll just buy from China instead. And China will sell them anything. Right? They'll sell much more sophisticated weapons than we will. And then China ends up with those relationships. China ends up with those basing rights. And those are things that we don't want to let go. And I think our government needs to get around this endless fault-finding with a lot of our allies and partners. A lot of these countries are not going to see the world exactly the way we do, but we need more friends. And that was our edge in the Cold War, and that's the weakness of China and Russia, if they don't have a lot that That's an interesting analysis, Michael. So, I, I have a question, Rob, go ahead, real
3: quick. Um, first of all, uh, Michael, this is Alex. I, I, it's been fascinating listening to you. I'm, I'm so happy we brought you on today. So thank you. Thank um, <laughs> you. I, I, my question to you, uh, being in the know, being around this environment uh, professionally, what is your take between the Ukraine front and the China front? What do you suspect is the, the medium term, uh, you know, how, how does, what's going to happen, let's call it over the next six to 12 months, with the Ukrainian front and with
4: our perceived China aggression? Well, uh, uh, first on the Ukraine front, um, I, uh, my fear is that, you know, that we lose our resolve. That's what, you know, the Osama bin Laden felt about us. is a lot of, you know, terrorists and militants feel that eventually we're going to give up and we're going to pick up our stakes and go home. And that's what Putin is counting on, right? So we, along with the European allies, have to remain strong to continue to support the Ukrainian military with everything we can so they can defend their homeland. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think the body administration I have some you know some criticisms of them because I think they're very slow to get them a lot of these weapon systems that they want but at the same time I think that they've taken a very good balanced approach and learned some of the lessons of history like I mean for example like we've kept US troops out of harm's way um, which and we are defeating you know the Russian military uh, for a very small portion of our defense budget right um, so I think that uh, you know, th- this war, this conflict, could go on for a very, very long time, and we have to have the stomach to see it through, right? Because not only are the Chinese watching, but other potential adversaries of ours are watching. Um, you know, on, on, on the China front, I, I don't see. Uh, the, the Chinese taking you know, Taiwan as quickly as some other um, you know, analysts might say. I mean, the, the Chinese military is not battle-tested as much as ours is and, and the Russians and, and many others. Um, but I also think we have to figure out what is our real plan here with China. right? China and Russia are very, very different. W- when the Russians invaded Ukraine, we could put sanctions on the Russians. Yes, it hurt us as far as oil was concerned to some degree with international markets, uh, but you know, we don't really buy much from the Russians. All right? I mean, we could live without vodka and caviar. But we buy a lot from the Chinese. and I don't think the average American understands how dependent we are on China for so much we do. Even, for example, things like the pharmaceutical industry. The fact that we don't make antibiotics in this country anymore is something a lot of Americans uh, don't recognize. So if the Chinese were to go into Taiwan, we couldn't respond the same way. We couldn't put sanctions on them uh, because we'd be hurting ourselves much more. And responding militarily is much, much more difficult for us to project a lot of power to that part of the world, Taiwan being an island very, very difficult for us and be of extremely uh, messy and and bloody conflict. So I think we have to figure out how we're going to coexist with the Chinese uh, and dial down this rhetoric while at the same time figuring out how we're going to onshore production of things that are essential to us and also onshore that production to our partners and allies because there's only so much we can onshore here. And again, that's part of our own self-inflicted wound here with our immigration policy. How are we going to onshore production, for example, microelectronics, if we have a worker shortage in this country? Right, we don't have the people to make the stuff, so we have a, a lot of problems that we have to sort out. So, what? How can we onshore some of that production to some of our allies and partners to know that we have a safe source of supply? You listen. One Go quick ahead. follow on to that, real quick. Sorry, one.
3: I mean, I could do this all day. Michael is just outstanding. Um, one quick follow on on that. You know, uh, Obama uh, was known to have a, a weak uh, foreign uh, policy stance. Uh, we, we've seen that with the current administration. Um, and then the other side of the aisle uh, sometimes has uh, too much of a provoking stance. Um, do you feel that, uh, whether it's Democrat or Republican, in the office of the presidency that, we'll, that the world will have more success, that we'll have more success uh, in, in you know, resolutions or at least maintaining uh, you know, not going to war or having conflict? Or does it not matter in your
4: eyes? I think what matters is really who the administration surrounds himself with. I mean, I, I think there, there are definitely a lot of very competent, very strong Democrats when it comes uh, to national security. And I think really what it starts with is, you know, learning the lessons, for example, of World War I, right? That war is a terrible, ugly thing, and we should do everything in our power to avoid it. Right? People went into World War One thinking this is gonna be glamorous. They couldn't wait to go off to war. Teachers were sending their students off to all this, this glory and glamour. You know, if you read all quiet in the Western Front, you see, you know, the harsh realities of what, what they all faced, right? So we have to avoid this at all costs, but um, the the choice of fighting is not always our choice. So if we are gonna fight, we have to be prepared to win it, and we have to use overwhelming force. That's something that Colin Powell was very good at in the first Gulf War, that if we were gonna fight, he's gonna use overwhelming force, he's gonna cut off this army, and he's gonna kill it, and that's exactly what he did. And we have to go in with clear-cut objectives. And that was the last conflict, the first Gulf War, where we had three clear-cut objectives. And once those clear objectives were achieved, Bush got the go ahead, got that signal from uh, General Schwarzkopf that they were a cheat, and the war was over, right? And we took our troops home. We're going in with too many open-ended commitments, and we can't define what victory is. And we have to be able to define. Well, that's right a, But I also go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, but I think when you talk about the difference between two parties, you have a lot of Republicans that are very isolationist and very protectionist as well. That um, you know, so I think you really have to pick and choose within both sides of the party. And I also think you have to look at. We are trying to protect our way of life here, and what kind of way of life are we protecting? And we have to make, at the same time, we look to protect ourselves militarily, that we have to make the investments here, like we talked about with education, you know, to prevent people from getting into poverty, to help people get out of poverty. Um, you know, what what way of life is it for somebody in this country who relies on the government for food, right? Or well, the one in four children, you know, one in four children in this country who do, or the fifty million people who live in poverty? We need to be able to attack both these problems. And this is America. We can do that. It's not a choice of either or. It's not a guns or butter decision. We can do this. We just need the intestinal fortitude to sit down, work together, and make it happen. You're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces, our Sunday edition. We do this Tuesday,
1: Thursday as well, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time at Get Rev Radio. Please follow us, all our speakers. We're with Michael Hurston, the President and CEO of American Defense International. He is one of the top defense and aerospace lobbyist in the country. We got you for a couple more minutes, and everyone out there, we are going to do a crypto segment for the last part of the show. Don't worry, we're getting to that soon. Um, um, basically, Michael, you know, such great insights, and in what you were just talking about, we can do both. So Anna put a, a sort of a thought out there. The, I think this debt ceiling conflict that we started with is a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of a different era of politics not necessarily the politics that everyone on left and right is saying, oh, everyone's willing to be more ruthless than they ever were. It's that I think we're entering a more transparent, people are willing to fight harder for the things they believe in. I think my question to you is, as someone lobbying for defense, you know, we will always have Dwight Eisenhower and the military-industrial complex question out there for good reason. If, If the leading general of World War II could say, we have to watch out for this, we have to watch out for it. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing, it means watch out for it. How do we, if we're moving into this new era as a lobbyist, how do you advise both members and companies that we have to start finding a balance? The country wants, it's too transparent. They want a safe country. They also want to address the things you talked about, poverty, you know, homelessness, social concerns. And if they think it's a one or the other, oh, we're putting all our money in Ukraine, we're not putting it here, then it's a lose-lose. How do you sell that as a win-win?
4: Well, I mean, look, I I think you're right. And it's it's, it's a complicated question. I mean, look, a lot of my clients, a lot of defense industry companies are publicly traded and their primary concern are their shareholders, right? They need to make money for their shareholders. So Congress... And the administration, including the Department of Defense, have to be the honest brokers in a lot of these things and really step in and not only protect our industrial base, but make sure that we're procuring the right weapon systems uh, at the right price, which may not be exactly all the things the defense industry wants to sell. What is it the things that we need and at what cost uh, do we need, we need to get them at? Um, at the same time, you know, again, we, we can't have this balance, but we have to be able to make some tough choices. Right now, we have a government that you know, everybody wants to campaign on how bad Washington is. Washington's terrible. Well, Washington's really not that bad. Washington does some really great things, right? And it makes, it changes people's lives and it provides that social safety net. You know, it it protects our food safety. You know, it it does a lot of things. It protects our our air safety. You know, it protects a lot of things for us. So we need to start talking about the good things that government does, but also understand that those things come at a price. Everybody wants something for free. No one wants to pay taxes to fund it. You know, I, I campaigned for a friend of mine. I won't say who years ago who had voted to reopen the government after a government shutdown. And people were angry that he voted to reopen the government. Right? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like uh, the government shutdown is not in our best interest. If you, if your house is on fire, you want the fire department to come. You know, if you have potholes on your street, you want those potholes filled. The government is here to serve a function and we have to start making that case. And we also have to pay the price for that. Last question on this. What could you tell your, your
1: clients in this space to help them? I, I think you make the point that Washington does some good things. Very few people see that. I, you're right. There are certain services and things that are good but people are fed up at the inefficiencies. They're fed up at the constant, you know, both sides. Look, I've been in this. I've seen it happen. I've seen both sides say things that they won't do because the other side would go after them on the same topic, but they think it's a good thing to do. That public perception is deep. What can actually firms, what can companies do, what can military defense aerospace companies do to help you know, help make that message. And what would you tell members of Congress to do? Because the, no matter what you say, the public perception is horrible. And it's not totally false, it's based on a lot of reality.
4: Yeah, no, look, it's true. And I think, you know, a lot of the people who will have uh, the platform, who'll have the microphone, uh, especially our, our leaders in, in Congress administration, need to use those microphones to talk about the good things that they're doing that their colleagues are doing that the government's doing and once in a while give some credit to the other side of the aisle you know that's that's when you talk about things have changed over the years That's something that has changed dramatically right uh republicans and democrats also both want to solve the same problems they just different ways of uh, different offer different solutions to those problems i think that is starting to fade i think people feel they get more uh, legwork out of demagoguing a problem than solving a problem. There's a lot of people in Washington now that are more concerned about their brand and how many Twitter followers they have, and the crazy things they can say uh, are more valuable to them because they feel that their job is only to get reelected, right? And I think we need to make it uh, to encourage more people who have real life experience coming into the government, people who don't need the job. So they're there to do the job because there's too many people here in Washington who need the job. So they don't want to make those tough decisions because they're looking to move up the chain, and they don't want a bad decision to come around and bite them in the ass someday. Last question for you. But, but
2: Michael. Uh, isn't it? Isn't it? I'm. Ju- I gotta jump in, Rob. I'm sorry. It, it, isn't it just the same thing but different tools? I mean, we've had career politicians. How long has Biden been on on uh, in, in Washington? Right. I mean, we've had people that are career politicians for decades. It's just that the technology is different. The technology is better, enabling them to focus on their own brands. That's that's my personal opinion. Do
0: you agree?
4: Oh, I, I think the technology has played a role, right? I have nothing, I, I don't have a problem with career um, politicians. I mean, people want to dedicate their life to public service and they're up before the voters every two, four, or six years. Um, the voters will make, make those decisions, right? But technology has, uh, I think, made things worse. For I'll give you an example. I have a I had a friend who was very senior in House Republican leadership and was on the move on the way up. Another friend in the Democratic side on the move on the way up. I said, you guys need to know each other. Let's go to dinner together. And I hit the staff of one of the members blocked it for six months because they were so afraid of somebody coming up and taking a picture of all of us having dinner and putting it out there on social media You know, with an aha, see, you know, he's having dinner uh, with the enemy. I had a, another congressman who had a caucus that was, uh, designed about getting Republicans and Democrats uh, together. I said to him, okay, I'll help you because he needs Republicans. He couldn't find any. I gave him a name of a Republican and uh, I thought it would be a good one to co-chair this caucus with him. He said to me, who is that? I said, are you kidding me? I said, he's not only the same committee that you're on, he's on the same subcommittee that you're on in Congress. And it's become too much of a shirts and skins thing where people walk in separate doors into a hearing room. They're all in the same room, but they walk out those separate doors and they're not spending enough time together. And people need to be encouraged to spend time and encouraged to travel. I mean, the State Department, Defense Department uh, take members of Congress all around the world to see our troops, to, to, to see foreign leaders. And a lot of members of Congress take pride in the fact that they don't spend the money on travel and don't do these things. And that's at a detriment to themselves and a detriment to the taxpayer. Michael, it's been a
1: great conversation with you. Michael Herson, President and CEO of American Defense International, a, a top defense and aerospace lobbying firm. We'll have you on again, have you on other platforms. You and I will have that conversation about term limits. I'm in a different camp on that one. But it's been really fun <laughs> to have you. So thanks for taking the time. Congratulations on your first Twitter spaces. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right B3 Nation, um, we've got a little bit of time. by the way, we got our after Beyond B3 coming up in, in the next hour and that's where we'll take questions. Um, you can you can ask questions, you can participate. We also have uh, retired uh, General uh, Anthony Tata coming on. Um, was also a, a top Defense Department official. That will be an interesting conversation. You can engage with him. That all kicks off right after this. Alex Masioli, we always promise our, our B3 Nation they will get a little crypto in every show. Um, I just I want to just do a little bit you know I saw a couple of things that popped out at me and one of them one of them really was why is Tether USDT doing well it's back at its all-time high where the other dollar paid stable coins like Circle and Binance aren't doing well
3: yeah it's a it's a great question um, but you know just to take a step back in this if you go back six years ago or more uh, you know, th- all we had was Tether when it came to stablecoin. As traders, uh, w- it was the primary asset. And to this day, uh, Asian traders have used Tether uh, above and beyond all the other stablecoins with uh, a lot of dominance. Um, what, what, so let's put this in perspective real quick, uh, give you some numbers. Um, right now, Tether, ticker USDT, it has a market dominance of 65%. That's up from 47% one year ago. Uh, and to give you an idea with USDC, which is the second largest, it uh, went from a market cap of uh, $55 billion, uh at its peak and sits at $29 billion now, while well, Tether's market cap is $83 billion. So there's been a big shift. Uh, or, or an increasing gap in dominance with stablecoins. Um, it's interesting because, in an interview with uh, uh, Jeremy Lair, who's the CEO of Circle, Circle is the creator of USDC, uh, he blames directly the crackdown by the US uh, regulators on USDC collected cat. Uh, um, and he's not so wrong. The, the current environment in the United States. Uh, is not favorable to crypto. USDC is uh, US domiciled. Um, many suspect, uh, or at least conspiracy theories do, uh, theorists do, that the reason you know uh, Circle hasn't been banged up as much as others uh, by regulators is that the uh, Fed wants to take it over as uh, the United States uh, CBDC. Um, but that's a that's another show altogether. Uh, you know, one of the things that Tether has done. Recently, is they de-risked from uh, the banking system, so they pulled out about four and a half billion uh, earlier in this year, and even Circle followed suit. Now, if you go back to March, uh, you know there was a massive depegging of USDC all the way down to ninety cents. There was an arbitrage that was played out by a few lucky uh, trading desks, but it, it was you know it was enough to be put a lot of to the. Market. And that was because. When the regulators shut down uh, Silicon Valley Bank, it came out that they had about $3.3 billion of reserves in that bank, uh, and people got very much worried. Now, there, it ended up nothing happening to USDC because of that, but the marketplace, fear, uncertainty, and doubt— uh caused a lot of people to pull back from usdc um tether the the other two you mentioned which was Dai and busd which is put out by binance have really not shown any competitive strength like tether and usdc have so i really i don't pay attention to that market um but tether is back in the dominance uh game uh just like it was in 2018 um, and I think uh, I think it's directly correlated with the lack of confidence in the. US. regulatory market. Okay, another
1: quick thing. I saw in Forbes last night the CZ from Binance tweeted that China China Central TV just broadcasted crypto, having a Bitcoin ATM and, and showing a Bitcoin ATM in Hong Kong and saying buy bitcoins. And he's saying this this this, this could once China does this kind of thing, it could trigger a massive, bear you know a bullish movement on on on
3: bitcoin is he right or wrong uh i i think i think he's wrong because all you have to do is wait till next week and china will for the 32nd time ban bitcoin <laughs> So okay, honestly, who knows? It it depends on which which uh, way the wind's blowing with the Chinese and their crypto stance.
1: Okay, last one before we're wrapping up the show. What is the deal? We've had we've had Peter Schiff on our Twitter Spaces before. Uh, Peter Schiff is being part of a a project centered around NFT art on the Bitcoin blockchain. (laughs) uh, Peter Schiff. Maybe we convinced him. Maybe we convinced him that he should go to Bitcoin.
3: Wow. Yeah. I mean, Peter Schiff, uh, a friend of the B3 Nation here, um, lives down by me. Uh, recently tweeted, I am pleased to announce an art project with one of my favorite artists, Market Price. Uh, it has to do with NFTs. Um, and he goes on to say, uh, it's a series of prints uh, and ins- inscribed on the Bitcoin blockchain by the ever popular uh new trend of ordinals which eh, ordinals have their own problems and we went through it a couple shows back uh with our dgen max as well um but uh, you know the fact that he had such a tweet was a complete reversal from his usual sense. now today before coming on the show i did bob in the caribbean in front of his house hoping he'd come out and i could ask him i haven't spoken to him yet about Uh, what this means and if uh, he's diversifying out of gold, um, but we'll see. It's it's an interesting take. I, people thought his account got hacked.
1: Right. Well, listen, and everybody out there in B3 Nation, if, if you are familiar, Peter Schiff is not a not a crypto guy at all. We're going to have him, Alex, we're going to have him back on, and we're going to have to ask him about this. This has been, listen, this has been a great show. It's the B3, it's the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter space. It's Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, Sundays, 5.30. Follow us at Get Radio. What we do now, and by the way, thank you, Alex, Mark, an amazing guest with Michael Hurston.
0: Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Masioli, Mark Lepresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at RevolutionRadio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions.